Welcome to Labor Law Radio. I'm your host, Michael Tracy, attorney at law. You can find me on the internet at www.laborlawradio.com. Chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, then you've already found me on the internet because we are no longer on the radio. So this is our first internet-only broadcast. Format will be a little bit different. We don't have to have two 30-minute segments. So this one will be a little bit shorter. And what we're going to talk about this week is labor law changes for 2008. So today is January 1st, the new year. Happy New Year to all the uh, employees and employers out there in California and across the country listening to this thing on the internet. Last year was a good year for wage and hour litigation in California. My firm had a number of interesting cases, very uh, positive cases on employees' benefits and uh, wage and hour issues. But with the new year comes a new series of laws, and that is what I'm going to talk about today. So nothing too radical for 2008. A few minor changes with uh, resetting the minimum wage and a couple other uh, changes and then a new military spouse leave law that we'll talk about a little bit at the tail end of this. So with that, let's uh, cover what uh, what has changed this year. Every year now in California, the minimum wage is going to be adjusted. This year it goes up to $8 per hour. Previously it was $7.50 an hour. Now it was $6.75 for a number of years, I think about five years. And when it first went up to $7.50 in 2007, we had an increase in the number of minimum wage cases, but not really a significant number. There are a lot of minimum wage violations out there, but unfortunately the employees are a bit hesitant to enforce their rights, so they don't come forward to bring a lawsuit or to complain to the Department of Labor or the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement in order to have these uh, have these rights enforced. So we do see a number of minimum wage cases where it is really relevant is in commissioned salespeople uh, I'll talk a little bit more about overtime and how that relates to commission salespersons in just a second and why the minimum wage is, is doubly applicable to these people. But frequently, commissioned people receive only commission. You know, the employer can use a draw program and pay people a, a draw against their commissions, and that's legal. And we've talked about that in other podcasts, so I won't get into it here. But in a number of cases I get, it is a commissioned employee that is commissioned only. And in certain pay periods, he or she does not receive any payments because she didn't make any sales. We had a number of loan officer cases where this is the case, a number of stockbroker things, uh, other type of commission sales people. They are entitled to minimum wage for every hour worked. So even if you're a commission salesperson and you're getting paid, quote, commission only, you're still entitled to minimum wage. So a lot of times the person is suing for some unpaid commission or something like that and Maybe they're not entitled to that commission. Maybe there was some misunderstanding about it. But frequently, we can go back the full four years and find out the pay periods where they were not paid at least minimum wage and recover the minimum wage for them. Now, an increase in minimum wage obviously means an increase in recovery. The benefit to minimum wage claims is that in California, there are automatic liquidated damages. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast um, or my radio show, you've heard me talk about liquidated damages for overtime and I've been very critical of California law because California law does not provide for liquidated damages for overtime payments, but federal overtime does. However, for minimum wage, California provides liquidated damages. So previously, if you did not, if you were a commissioned only salesperson making $0 an hour for, let's say, a two-week pay period, you would be entitled not only to the $7.50 an hour, but an 
equal additional amount of liquidated damages, an additional $750 an hour coming to $15 an hour. Now for 2008, it goes to $8 an hour or $16 an hour with liquidated damages. In addition, you receive uh, interest and uh, penalties on top of that under California law. Federal law only gives you the uh, uh, the liquidated damages. So for minimum wage violations, commission salespeople who are not getting minimum wage, or we have had you know restaurant workers and, and other construction workers and stuff like that who receive less than the minimum wage, you do get the liquidated damages. Another thing where it's relevant is piece rate workers. If you're getting paid a piece rate, the employer needs to ensure that you are receiving at least $8 an hour now going forward for every hour that you work. So we had have had probably three or four piece rate cases where minimum wage was an issue in the last year. So we'll probably have a little bit more of those uh, in the coming year. The main impact for minimum wage on the vast majority of workers out there in California, and m most workers do not make minimum wage, most make well above it. So where it does have an impact is in two other segments that base certain minimum salary requirements or minimum pay requirements on the minimum wage. And the first one is the big three exemptions, executive, administrative, professional exemptions. Those all require that you be paid a salary basis of at least two times the minimum wage for full-time employment. So based on $8 an hour, that comes out to be $640 a week or just a little bit over $33,000 a year, $33,280 per year. Now, that isn't particularly relevant for the administrative exemption or the professional exemption. Most people who qualify for the administrative or professional make well over $33,000 a year. Professional would be things like accountants, doctors, lawyers, scientists, things like that, conducting research. Uh, also, it would cover artistic people, actors, uh, sculptors, artists, architects, uh, things like that. In most cases, these people make well more than $33,000 a year, and it's not an issue. The administrative exemption covers white-collar workers who are engaged in management policy and general business operations of the employer, things like human resources, uh, labor relations, workers' compensation uh, issues, uh, legal issues for the employers, things like that, process optimization, and, and various business issues like that at the policy level. Most of those people make well more than $33,000 a year. So where the new cap, the $640 a week, is directly relevant is for people who are employed as, quote, executive employees. Sometimes people call this the managerial exemption. There is no such thing as a managerial exemption. You must be a bona fide executive. And I've talked about the requirements for that, the ability to hire and fire, supervise a customarily recognized department, all those things, exercise discretion and independent business judgment. The For most people, it's very easy to determine whether they're an executive. But for people who are making you know, less than $33,000 a year, we no longer need to do this duties analysis. We don't have to look at how they spend their time during the day. They're going to automatically be entitled to overtime. Now, typically for people who are making less than $40,000 a year and they are categorized as bona fide executives by the employer, that is, they are denied their overtime, usually they're spending far more than 50% of their time on routine, non-exempt duties, the same type of thing as the people that they are supposedly supervising. So those people are entitled to overtime anyway. This just makes those cases a little bit easier because the salary amount goes up. So... 
that'll affect a, a number of people who were quasi-managers or falsely being uh, denied their overtime payments because they were labeled as some type of executive of the company. So the other big change in the law relating to the minimum wage is also relates to commissioned salespeople. So we had talked about how they're entitled to minimum wage, and if they're commissioned only, they may have a claim for that. But they are also entitled to overtime unless they make at least one and a half times the minimum wage for every hour worked. Now, that's the big difference between the executive exemption, you know, the big three exemptions, executive, administrative, professional. They only need to make the minimum wage based on a 40-hour week. So you have to make two times the minimum wage to be exempt as an, as an executive, but that's defined as simply $640 a week. Multiply eight times $8 per hour times a 40-hour week, you get uh, times two, and you get $640 per week. But what if you work 80 hours that week? Well, then if you do the math, you're only making $8 an hour. If you work, let's say, more than 80 hours that week, it's a long week for you, you worked 100 hours, and you do occasionally see people working these type of hours, well, you're only making $6.40 an hour. That is well below the minimum wage. However, as long as you are doing exempt activities, you know, supervising your department, you know, running the, uh, managing the business affairs of your employer, then you're not entitled to overtime. You're not entitled to minimum wage. You are exempt from overtime and minimum wage. So even if you make $640 a week and you work 100 hours in that week, you can still not be entitled to any overtime. However, that is not the case for commission salespeople. Commission salespeople have to make one and one half times the minimum wage for every single hour that they work. So in our example of a 100-hour work week, the minimum wage is now $8 an hour. One and a half times that is $12 an hour. That salesperson would have to make at least $1,200 in order to be exempt from overtime. You know, so if they work less than that, it would be less. But that's a 100-hour week, just mainly so the math can be simple here for this uh, audio broadcast. So there are other requirements to be exempt as a salesperson. At least 50% of your total income must come in the form of commissions. And for most commission salespersons, that is the case because, as I said, they're paid entirely on commission. If they do get paid a draw, usually the draw is considered a type of commissions. Where it is not is where you are paid a fixed salary and the employer designates it as a salary such as $500 a week plus commissions. But if it's the greater of commissions or $500 a week, the $500 a week would probably be seen as a draw and that would be uh, considered commission payments. If you receive an hourly payment such as $8 an hour plus commissions, then you would have to make 50% of your wages as commissions and the $8 an hour wouldn't, uh, would not count as commissions. But your total compensation has to exceed now one and a half times uh, the state minimum wage for every hour worked. So that's the big changes that the, the change in minimum wage is going to bring about. The next big change, and I've talked about that, I talked about that in my last podcast, so I'm not going to go into tremendous detail here, and that is the change in the hourly rate for computer professionals. Computer professionals previously required 
to be making well over $100,000 per year. Now that rate was dramatically reduced by uh, Governor Schwarzenegger in a recent bill, and that goes into effect January 1 today of this year. So as of if you're listening to this podcast as a computer programmer, chances are you're not entitled to overtime anymore, uh, depending on how much money you're making. You know, if you're making basically now, if you're making more than $80,000, $90,000 a year, then you're probably not going to be entitled to significant overtime. It is on a sliding scale. We've talked about that before. It's all up on my website. You, so you can see how the calculations work. But the vast, a, a good number of computer programmers are no longer entitled to overtime pay effective right now. Interestingly enough, and I had posted this on my blog on a website that I blogged to, and I had predicted that by denying these computer programmers their overtime, we would see an increase in the number of people filing cases. And believe it or not, that has come true. Just in December, I've had a dramatic increase in the number of computer programmers who are actually filing claims. you know, wanting to pursue cases against their employer. It was always very frustrating for me personally in that I would talk to a number of computer professional employees, explain the law to them, and frequently they would be entitled to a substantial amount of money, but for whatever reason they were reluctant to pursue it. Now I'm seeing that that reluctance is gone. They are much more interested in pursuing their rights. Now you have a limited time to do it, Anything, any work performed after January 1, 2008, probably you don't get overtime for that. You can still claim for work that you performed prior to today, but and that can go back for a period of four years, but as that goes on, your claims diminish. And so I don't think, you know, two years from now, these cases will have, you know, all but evaporated. But as, you know, for the next year or so, I think a lot of computer programmers who suddenly have become aware of their rights all of a sudden want this uh, want this money before it uh, before it evaporates and goes away. So those are the big wage and hour issues, you know, the minimum wage, computer overtime. Another regulatory issue, and this one is a long, long, long time in coming. Finally, the law does not allow employers to print your social security number on your payroll check stub. Uh, for years, they were not only allowed to, but required to print your full social security number on your paycheck stub with you know the dramatic increase in identity theft and there wasn't a tremendous benefit to having the social security number on there obviously you want to verify your social security number make sure your taxes are being credited to the correct social security number uh, but you can do that at the end of the year there wasn't a there wasn't a tremendous benefit for it but it was the law and employers did have to comply with it. Now the law is they cannot print more than four digits of your social security number. They are allowed to use their own internal employee ID number, as long as that employee ID number isn't the same thing as your social security number. Some companies were trying that uh, that game. Oh, we don't use social security numbers. We use employee ID numbers. They just happen to be the exact same as their social security number. Well, okay, so that's not legal anymore. Um, not going to see significant litigation around this. I, I imagine most of the major payroll companies, ADP, Paychex, uh, Ceridian, they all comply with this law. So I don't think you'll see these you know, huge class actions of thousands of employees. But if you are still having your social security number printed on your paycheck stub, 
you are entitled to damages for that, uh, obviously, because you're exposed to identity theft. You may have to shred these things. You may have to cross out the social security number just so somebody doesn't accidentally pick it up because you probably want to keep your paycheck stubs. It's always a good idea uh, to keep your paycheck stubs. Your employer is required to keep them for three years and give you the opportunity to copy and inspect those. But if you are relying exclusively on your employer to protect your interest in your money, then you're probably a mistake and the best person to protect your interest in your, your money is your attorney. No, it's yourself. So you always want to uh, make sure that uh, you're keeping your own records. And, and you know, obviously, if you have all the sensitive personal information on them, you don't want somebody who accidentally picks up one of your paycheck stubs to assume your whole identity and, you know, buy a big screen TV on your, uh, on your credit card. So anyway, that is the law. There are some penalties for that. You basically get $100 per paycheck that they printed on. I don't think we've ever pursued a claim exclusively for defective paycheck stubs. So if the only thing this employer is perfectly in compliance with every single other labor law on the planet, but they are violating the social security number, I'd be hesitant to take that case unless it was a, some type of class action or something like that. However, that is I've never seen that to be the case. Uh, generally, employers are in violation of a whole slew of labor laws by the time a person calls me with a, with a problem or an issue. Not only that, but they probably refuse to address the issue individually with the employee. Generally, people don't call, pick up the phone and call me as soon as one little thing goes wrong with their paycheck or you know, they lose one hour of overtime. I do get people that have done that, but they don't ultimately become clients. Most clients have a slew of labor issues. They've raised the issue with their employer. The employers refuse to do anything about it, and that's when they have to get an attorney involved. It's unfortunate, um, but obviously that's you know what keeps me in business. So in any case, that's a new law for 2000, uh, 2008. Another new law, which also I think is a long, long overdue, and I think most employers were, you know, this is just common sense, and this is a military spouse leave law. It doesn't really expand a whole bunch of rights, and there's a number of restrictions on it. So, I mean, if it does affect you, you'll, you'll definitely want to go on the web, do a little research on this law to figure out what exactly is required because you have to notify your employer. But for employers that have at least 25 employees, a military spouse, that is somebody whose husband or wife is in the military and is deployed into a combat zone such as Iraq or uh, Afghanistan, and the military spouse, you know, the military uh, uh, soldier or sailor or airman, returns on leave, the spouse has a right to two weeks of unpaid leave. So you have to give notice. I mean, it just makes common sense. If your husband or wife is in the military and he or she comes home for two weeks on leave from being deployed in combat, it would make sense that you would take two weeks off to, to spend time with them. So a lot of this was just common sense. Uh, it does require the employer to, uh, to give this thing. I will just comment that, uh, some employers are not do not believe it is that fair or efficient or anything like that. And one of my there is another labor law attorney who I won't mention her name because uh, she's on the defense side. She runs her own uh, labor and employment blog for uh, you know uh, employers, uh, you know a podcast. So if you're getting this from iTunes, you've probably seen her on the uh, on the list because there's only five or six attorneys out here covering the subject area. So she's one of the bad guys. So I won't. Uh, I won't give her a, a plug on here, but uh, in any case, reading an article by her, she was somewhat critical of this new law, and she said, uh, there are uncertainties about this law. For example, as noted above, 
The law does not address whether an employer has flexibility to ask the 10-day leave be scheduled in accordance with business operational needs. What? It's designed so that you can take leave the husband or wife is at home. So I'm sorry if your business or operational needs don't correspond to what's going on in the war, but we're not going to rearrange our entire military deployment schedule so that you can have some you know, employee shuffling papers around the office for an additional two weeks. I mean, the two weeks is the two weeks that you need. You're not going to, well, we're busy this month. Can you, can you ask your, your husband to, uh, to delay his deployment for a month so we can get this new product out the door? That's not the way it works. An employer who's got 25 people is significantly benefited by, you know, the services our country provides. One of those services that we provide is armed service protection. And everybody has a, everybody in America benefits from that. And it's, you know, some people are going to have to pay an extra price. I mean, I was a veteran. I was in the, in the services. The other, you know, millions of Americans currently in the service are all doing their part to, um, you know, keep the country working, keep, uh, keep America strong and, to, to, to say that an employer is going to be inconvenienced by somebody taking two weeks leave, I think is a, is a bit of a stretch. But in any case, when you're a defense attorney and advocating this type of stuff, I guess you gotta, uh, you got to have something to put up on your blog or on your podcast. So anyway, I, I look forward to listening to her podcast on this subject. Uh, I'm probably your only listener. But uh, in any case, that is what we have for this year in, in 2008. I do get a number of questions about whether we're going to go back on the radio. I would like to go back on the radio, but it takes such an incredible amount of time to produce these podcasts every single week. With the internet, I plan on doing about one a month, so the schedule's down a lot more. But it simply was taking up too much of my time. Uh, if we can, you know, clean up some of our cases, get uh, you know, get our caseload down a little bit more, and. I will have more time to devote to, to marketing efforts and educational efforts such as this. But but currently, there's no uh, there's no major plans. The uh, podcast does have a couple hundred subscribers on a regular basis. I mean, we basically come in weekly. We've got I think at last count about three or four hundred subscribers onto our iTunes podcast, which is very good. I'm I'm very happy with uh, with that number. So I'm going to continue to do the uh, the podcasting and iTunes and stuff like that. And hopefully, you continue to listen to me. If you have any questions. You can go on the laborlawradio.com website, submit a question there, or go to my uh, uh, my overtime website, www.gotovertime.com. And so that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back shortly with some more exciting news about labor and employment issues in California. This broadcast has been a commercial advertisement of the law office of Michael Tracy, not meant to be legal advice, and does not serve to establish attorney-client relationship. Any statements made during this broadcast are also swear or not guarantees of any outcome. Michael Tracy is licensed as an attorney only in California.